I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, the Old Testament. I'm going to read the first 20 verses, the first 20 verses of Isaiah 41. The context here is to people um, threatened with exile and, um, and not uh, on top of the world. In other words, they are not the power and they are not established, but rather there's larger kingdoms right, that have swallowed up Israel. And uh, so it speaks to some of, of these things that are going on in the world, the time of exile. It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress 
and uh, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So far from God's holy word, a dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah gives us this incredible prophetic challenge about the glory, about the power and deliverance, about the wisdom and the timing of God. What a vision of our Lord. What is God like? And what is it like to belong to him and to know him? And we see here this incredible picture of our God against his enemies and at work in the world and for his people. And it's incredible. It's it's amazing. We will see uh, that we have every reason to rest every reason to have confidence, every reason for assurance, stand in awe of his kind and caring actions toward us. So we see, you know, in, under this, this uh, sort of general theme of just the greatness of God, Isaiah is delivering his message that the Lord alone reigns with unmatched power over the nations, securing and strengthening and enriching his people, Israel. In the first several verses, especially one through four, God speaks through the prophet about um, about events in the world and the movements of nations. He's not, you know, he's not the God that sort of keeps to himself. Uh, You know, some people describe God as sort of having set up the world and walked away, you know, sort of the uh, this this view of God that that he's really unknowable. That's kind of the agnostic view of God. Uh, They say, well, you know, he's God and he made the world, but you really can't know him. And after he made everything, he just walked away. You see all through the scripture, certainly in the prophets and definitely in this chapter, a God that is involved, a God that does not stay where he's where he's placed. You know, we put you in your box, God, and you're not allowed to leave. Or we put, you know, caution tape around and we put cones around you and you're not allowed to interfere with us and what we want in our lives. This is the way that people treat him. And this is the way that those who want to make this hard distinction, you know, the church and, and its life and its ways, you know, that's religious things and it belongs in a religious box. And secular things are for, you know, the adults or for real people that are really serious and we want to get things done. Uh, and this, this separation, the Bible does not respect any such talk. God rules the world. He rules all politics. He rules all nations. He rules all people according to the scripture, in a way that does not, it does not honor or respect at all the boundaries of religious and secular, uh, the way that people talk about it today, the separation of church and state. And, um, God rules all nations, and not respecting him is their ruin, and not acknowledging him is their foolishness, uh, but it certainly uh, doesn't exempt them from his involvement. So it's quite a statement, you know, for a world that's hostile to God and hostile by extension to people who love God and are Christians. Our culture thinks that God is not allowed to do things and we're not allowed to talk about things 
And we are constantly proclaiming and making, you know, making the, the assertion everywhere. You need to know the Lord and you need to understand that, every, you know, these these foolish ideas about God are going to be are lead to destruction and your immoral and unholy ways against God are an offense to him and they lead to destruction. It's foolishness and it's futility. Meanwhile, in God's word, uh, you can see uh, that he is acting exactly according to his plan and directing the events of this world. He holds the reins, as it were, of power in the world. And uh, you have this comical situation you know, set up uh, in these opening verses uh, that describes not only God's control, but the world's sort of vexed reaction you know, to what's going on. Who could have predicted it? And, and there's a lot of upheaval and uncertainty. We find that, that God knew and that God is the driver of it. So the Lord describes the way that he is stirring up a man in the east, that is Cyrus, uh, who is going to, uh, he's going to lead the Persian Empire uh, that's going to swallow up the Babylonian Empire. That's about the time uh, that, that we're thinking here. Uh, and it's going to take down the greatest world power currently, Babylon, with yet a, an even greater power, the Persian Empire that's coming from the east and swallowing up the Babylonian Empire. You know, who could have predicted it, right? One, uh, you know, big fish is swallowed by an even greater fish. And God is the one that knew. And God is the one that prepared. Powers in the world rising and falling. And it's from the Lord. Kings and nations shifting. And the Lord is behind it. And the Lord has been doing it through all generations. I was the first and I am the last, uh, is the message from God. And the world is scandalized and the world can't believe, you know, uh, we're in constant crisis about our politics and how things are shifting. And God is not surprised at all. It's, it's from him and it's according to his wisdom. And that is uh, something for us to constantly meditate on you know, in our men's Bible study, we talked a little bit about the idea of, you know, to be careful not to become overly worked up by politics, as bad as it may be, uh, remembering that God still reigns over all things. I want to moderate, you know, moderate my attitude about, you know, bad or good decisions of our government or of other events in the world, remembering that God is not surprised and neither is he upset um, by the events that you know, we hear, you know, on a never ending news cycle, you know, now news travels around the world in a millisecond and we're riding the waves of good news, bad news all the time. Wars and rumors of wars and the roller coaster of faraway disasters and then local disasters and everything in between. Um, you know, the president is here and Russia did this and China did that. And we get to hear all the bizarre and grotesque news of all sorts uh, from everywhere. But we're not to become cynical and desperate and bitter people. We're to remember God was first and God will be there at the, you know, at the last. And uh, I can be at peace when I remember that he is my anchor. You know, my, I, I, I anchor in him and I'm secure. Whereas the world has no anchor and is adrift. And in that way, uh, we are... We are very different people 
in Christ than we were because we have a foundation, whereas the world is constantly shaken, that God uh, is not a fad, but God is our foundation. In uh, that way, we, we have to respond not with constant agitation, uh, but rather with constant thankfulness. Not constantly, you know, sort of upset about everything we read in the news, but rather with constant joy in Christ. And that's a challenge to us to to willingly uh, remember thankfulness, to willingly honor the Lord first uh, and and turn our minds and set them on him the way that we're meant to do, fixing our minds on Christ who is the true king at God's right hand. And, and that, will, that will secure our souls and it will anchor our minds as we think about who God is and what he's done. You can see here in this chapter, it's a small thing for God to set a king you know, on a throne. For him, that's a small matter. And um, he sets up the greatest kings, and then he knocks them down and sets up another one. And he showed that when the time was right, that nothing could stop God from making way for his plans. And of course, we're thinking always of the king of God's choosing in the more ultimate sense. That is, when God is ready to make way for King Jesus. And that's the expectation that the prophets had, you know, watching the tumult of their times and always hungering for and always thinking, but God, when will you send your Messiah? When will you send the Davidic king? When will you send the king you know, for which we are truly waiting? Well, think about now verses 5 through 7. It gets even more comical. It says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have, uh, they have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who uh, strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What are they talking about? You know, they're talking about goldsmiths and craftsmen. It's idol making that they're talking about. You know, they're, how are they steadying themselves in this time of tumult when everything they thought was secure is insecure? They're nailing down their idols better is the answer here. You know, like, like, let's really do a careful job. You know, so everything is unhinged in the world. The empires are rising and falling and we're nailing down and soldering down our idols better is the answer. And there's a lot of comedy there with nervousness. You know, they see what's happening and they're like, where can we find some security? And they find it not with the Lord who is really moving events. They find it in idolatry. You know, we've been we've been living in an unstable time. These are unstable days, so it seems to me. Jesus described the world as as shifting sand, right? To build on this world and to stake your hopes on it is to stake, you know, your house right on on the sand dune. Uh, that's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to get washed away. How true it is, right? That this world is not dependable and. So we're, we're warned constantly, be careful of getting the same old answers, you know, and going back to the same old places to find security when you know that they didn't work before 
and they're not going to work now. It's, it's rather like hammering out and soldering and, and nailing down an idol on its pedestal. Um, uh, you know, to think about this thought that, that our go-to for security is money. It's, it's, a, it's a silly thought. We'll, we'll do again what people have tried and tried and tried to do to secure themselves with money, and they have failed. It's fleeting. It, it's, you know, the, the Old Testament uh, in Proverbs says sometimes it spouts, you know, sprouts wings and flies away. That's about how dependable riches can be. And so much idolatry is bound up in, you know, money is my security. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. You know, it didn't fix it before, but it'll fix it this time. You know, our answers are the same old answers, which is kind of the joke that you have here. Like, make, make your idols even more secure. And it leads to futility, more distraction. I'll just pretend, you know what I mean, that, that everything is fine in my life. More pleasure. I'll just cram in sort of more enjoyment. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Lately, the answer has often been more, you know, we need more government. We need more rules. We need the government to, to do more to make us more secure. Did it lead to security? Did it fix the problem? I don't think so. Not particularly. It's the same old answers. You know, we'll, we'll do it harder. We'll fix it. You know, we'll do more to control. And our control slips away. Sometimes the answer is, you know, more education. If people were only more educated, right, then our society would, would improve and we would stop, you know, harming each other. or We would stop, you know, harming the environment or whatever it might be. That is the priority of the day. We keep going back to the same things and we find they don't make us any more secure apart from the wisdom of God and apart from his Christ than more money, more, you know, more uh, sort of power, more education. Uh, All the wisdom of the wise is thwarted by the wisdom of God. And you have, you know, you have something going on here, all this busyness, but it's I, the Lord. He identifies himself, you know, I, the Lord, am the one that you really need to go to. Israel ought to know that the, wor- the unhinged world, the idolatrous world, can't figure it out. They're darkened in their understanding. But Israel should know, it was me that made you secure. And it was me who, when, you know, as God, when I was with you, and when I chose you, you were secure and not apart from me, right? So verse 8 is where you see the contrast, right? But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, I took you and I made you secure, is his message to them. Don't be like these nations who are idolatrous and who are spinning their tires, you know, for no benefit. But remember the Lord. In contrast to the nations whose wisdom and cleverness can't give them mastery over world events. In contrast to the nations who look to the wrong source, they look to the loving God, the God of Abraham, the God who chose them, the God who was loving and thinking of them when they were spread out to the you know, corners of the earth. And with him, they have security. God loves Israel, his chosen servant. He chooses them to love them. You know, Jesus says the same this morning in John 15. I loved you, right? Love others as I have loved you. And, you know, 
be filled with, with joy, the very joy that I have with the Father, you know, I share with you. In fact, everything I have from the Father, I share with you. Right? You did not cho- choose me, but I chose you uh, for, for this spiritual life, this fruitfulness. Well, over the course of the chapter, the description of Israel does not necessarily highlight their worthiness. It rather highlights God's strength and God's kindness and God's choice to secure them in his love. He chose Abraham out of obscurity, you know, sort of beyond the river. And the whole world may now be on fire, but God will not cast them off or forget about them. The nation may be despised. It may be under attack and surrounded by enemies. But he says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't be dismayed. Remember that I'm your God. It's very beautiful uh, that God gives to them what the nations can't get. He gives them this nailed down security. He gives them, you know, better than soldering with metals, right? He gives them true security. My hand, right? My righteous right hand is with you. That I am the one Right, that when you look to me, you'll find true security. You know, the proud and powerful enemy today will be so crushed by God that there won't be a speck of them left. There won't be a trace of them left. You know, point out, point out, where are they now? You know, he sort of challenges them. These enemies that you have, they will be as nothing. Point out to me, you know, where are they now, the ones who threatened you? And they, they can't even be found, right? That you can't even you can't even scrape together the evidence that they were there. So defeated by God. And this is God's promise, right? His promise to his people. The security and the kingdom without end, uh, his protection and care, the proud and powerful enemies of today, so crushed by God that we have nothing to fear. We're, we, we don't fear men. You know, what can they do to us? But rather, we, we put all of our trust and our hope in God. They can't snatch away our salvation. Do we have big, bad enemies? We do. Maybe, maybe we're so small, they barely notice us, you know, as it were, the Christians here in West Sayville. Maybe, or maybe we're not even on their radar because we're too small to be. But we have... We have in this world enemies that want our destruction. They want to wipe out the message of the gospel. Do we have scary challenges and fears? You know, the threat of death and the threat of decay and the threat of of all kinds of trouble in this life. We do. But God's word says not for long, right? Not for long. All of those all of those are temporary threats. And we rather have in front of us. Uh, the security of God's promises. The threats of this world are going to pass away. They're going to topple. Uh, our enemies are going to be uprooted and, as it were, burned. But God stands in strength and we stand with him. And what can this be, right, except the total victory that we have in Jesus Christ? The fruitfulness, the established and lasting life we have with him. Thank you, Lord. For this testimony of the evergreen, you know, hope 
uh, of the Christian. But look particularly at verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Not very flattering. It's not a typo. It's not like, a, oh, they mistranslated. Like they were supposed to say beloved or something. They're, you know, it's like there's plenty of places where God calls us beloved. There's not as many where the prophet calls us a worm, right? Jacob, you worm. Very interesting. But it's necessary for us. It's sort of a, uh, it's important to understand what kind of salvation we really have, even if it embarrasses us a little bit. This is where the lowly, the truly helpless, are lifted up by God, while the proud, in all of their great strength, are torn down. It's very different than like we're on an equal footing, you know, and the world is, you know, it's where we have this struggle. And when when God sides with us, it finally tips the scale. That's very different than worm against the most powerful forces in this earth. Uh, so so the drama is greatly increased. God says about the worm in, in, you know, in no small way. You, the worm, helpless, I'm going to make you into the threshing sledge. That is like how you sift wheat, you know, how you grind and and cut down the wheat. I'm going to make you into a threshing sledge. But you're not, it's not even going to just be the power of, of sort of, you know, threshing the wheat. It's going to be threshing the hills, threshing the mountains. You're going to, you're going to cut stone because of the power that I bring. Right? You're going to chew up the nations, even though they're mountains, even though they are stones. You're going to crush them. You know, it's, it's, um, it's quite a thing to think about. I remember a lot of times when I was a kid, we don't, we don't eat milk and cereal anymore in our house. But I ate it every day. Here we are, you know, all, this, all the kids around the table, you know, uh, chomping on very loud cereal. And I think of this thought of chewing the stones to nothing, so that it says here they're going to be blown away like the chaff. You know, in these verses following verse 14, you're going to winnow them and the wind will carry them away. What a picture it is that God is going to take the worm, the, the weakest, the helpless, the, of the least uh, reputation, of the least strength among the nations and make them so incredibly strong that the mountains are going to be chewed up, and as it were, what's left of them is blown away as the afterthought. The joy, uh, the joy of the Lord uh, is with us. Incredible strength, way beyond our ability to explain. This is not from me. This is from him. Jesus has given us his spirit for this undeserved and unpredicted upset. The powers of the world not able to stand against the power that he has established, the gates of hell not able, not able to overcome his church. It's beautiful. The weak lifted up by faith in Jesus. Worms, worms to winners, worms to warriors is dramatic. In verse 17, it says, When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. 
And he goes on to talk about how he's going to open up the water. You know, he's going to open up rivers and open up fountains in such a way that that the poor, let's say they are the tiniest seedlings, are going to become these strong trees. And where there was a desert, God is going to water so well that they become, you know, they become something incredibly bigger than what they were. We have this this uh, this important principle in God's word, you know, not to fear and not to judge by things as we see them now, but rather to believe his promises in the very same way that Abraham said, as it stands, I have no heir and I am beyond the age of childbearing. And this whole thing seems extremely unlikely at best, dare I say impossible, where, and yet I believe the Lord. Right. And it's credited to him as righteousness. It's that kind of faith that says right now I am a worm. I am less than nothing in the eyes of the world. This seems impossible that it could lead to eternal glory. But this is the constant uh, nature of God's promises in the scripture. We have to believe his promises and we will see that everything he promises is vindicated. The poor and the needy are God's people who refuse to look for strength or help anywhere, you know, not to any idol, not to any human power, but to God, and they will be vindicated by his righteous right hand. They may be a worm. They may be the smallest mustard seed, as it were, the the very tiniest. Um, And the dramatic upheaval of God's power is trustworthy. And we, uh, you know, in such a time as we live, right, we have to own those same promises and trust them and put our faith in God in the same way. That God will answer the parched people with springs of water. I don't know how in a climate like this our witness will be heard by anyone. All people care about is money. All people care about is power. Everyone is so divided they're ready to strangle each other over politics. And all these different concerns that we have. Every, the, the immorality is so crazy that, you know, uh, if you tell the truth that a man is a man, you're going to end up in jail or something. It's, it's, getting, it's getting really crazy. And I am just a peasant. I, I say things and I don't have any power. And, it, you know, it just seems completely hopeless. And we're dealing with a world that seems so dry and so hopeless and so twisted in sexual immorality and wickedness, you know, it's, we're, te- we're tempted to, to quit. We're tempted to give up. It's impossible. And many, you know, uh, you know, have decided their refreshment can only come from, you know, money and sexual immorality. Their refle- re- refreshment is not found with God or with his ways. And we believe against This culture, which is dry to the bone, that also matches this morning in John 15. You know, the cut off branches are dried out. One spark could set it all ablaze. We believe against this world that God is going to refresh us and not just with a few drips, you know, on our tongue, but satisfy our thirst even with the flood of living water, which is exactly as Jesus preached that from him, we drink of him and we have the wellspring of life overflowing in us. Consider it and know it, says the prophet in verse 20. 
that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. This is what God has in mind to do. See it and know it, believe it and understand it and be wise. Everyone everywhere needs to know that the hand of the Lord brings satisfaction, that with him there is life everlasting. And in this world, our idolatry will leave us cut off. It will leave us dried out. It will leave us anchorless. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to secure our salvation. He sent Jesus to accomplish what no one else can accomplish so that the spin cycle of kings and of powerful people and of governments go, you know, it goes on in the world, but there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like God's king. And the security that he brings, the satisfaction that he brings, no one else can bring. The cross was an incredible upset where through the lowest kind of shame and the ugliest sort of death, even looking like a worm that is, you know, a criminal, um, you know, someone who, who talked, you know, his, he was mocked as, you know, lower than, than a worm. He's the scum of the earth. Jesus, you know, naked and bleeding on the cross and his, his, uh, he's mocked and he's shamed uh, and he dies in that low and ugly death. The Lord has revealed through the cross and through Jesus, the, you know, the, the disgusting, grotesque, tortured, uh, you know, uh, criminal in the eyes of his opponents has become has become the one that threshes the world is the one that has, you know, not only broken open the tomb, but threshed the power of death. The power of death is shredded by Jesus. And the teeth of death are broken, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? So the, the power that God is describing here, we have seen the power from God of the worm that becomes the threshing sledge. And it's through the cross. The instrument of, the instrument of God's deliverance, uh, very unexpected, right? Through through the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus. We know what God has purposed for our rescue. Believing in Jesus, all of these words will be true for us. We've seen it when we saw him crucified and rise again. We've seen the power that raises up the lowest to the highest. He is now the king to follow, the one to whom we bow, and the one who will sit on the throne, and every idol will fall, and Jesus will stand. Those who trusted their own strength will be stripped of everything that they had. And those who, though they were the lowest, trusted in Jesus, will be enriched. God's people will be singing the song of victory, very like the songs that we sing in lowliness together, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes out of key. God uh, will, will make us to sing because he proves his faithfulness and he proves his power for us. The Lord bringing us complete satisfaction in life and his strength becoming our strength, his spirit given to us as our spirit. 
and His goodness as our possession. He will never fail to complete His good promises. And we're not afraid. We're not afraid of things you know, unfolding now in the world. We're not afraid of the future. With Jesus, we're not downtrodden by the tumult of this life, beaten down by it to despair. Our strength is renewed with him. And his righteous right hand has worked our salvation. We depend on him and his victory is sure. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful to you that where we were the most helpless and where we were cut off, that you have provided for us this incredible victory, this uh, unexpected um, and complete turnaround of our fortunes, so that where we were uh, completely exposed, where we were vulnerable, where we were helpless, and ready to be swallowed by the power of this world, and certainly when we were given over to the power of sin and death, you have contended for us and won. You have gained the victory for us in no uncertain terms, conquering sin and death and bringing now life and salvation to bear. We pray, Heavenly Father, then that with humility, uh, we would rejoice and feed on Jesus and find our satisfaction in him. Hear our prayer, Lord, and bless us through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in response, not 328.